This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome, welcome, welcome to F1 with DRS. I'm Dan Shepard. I'm joined by Matthew Collins and Jethro Bovington. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you guys? I'm sorry I missed you last time. I was in a very busy airport in Milan. Yeah. What was that experience like? Well, it was fine. I did a cool thing. I went to Pininfarina, who are based just outside Turin, but flying to Turin from the UK is not easy. So I flew into Milan, Malpensa, went to see their wind tunnel, which is super cool. And they were telling me a bit about F1 cars in wind tunnels, which was fun as well. And then I thought I'd be able to sneak back, get through security, go to the lounge, find a quiet corner and um, hook up and speak to you guys about the Grand Prix. And sadly, none of those things happened because it was chaos. I think your average person is a little annoyed. I forget what the number is, but it's around 8 million podcasts, active podcasts. That seems to irritate people. But Certainly, if people in the lounge are doing their podcasts, that might take it to a whole new level. Like if I, was, oh, I thought it would be great. Oh, it would be great, especially for us. as I'm not even flying like uh, business or anything. I was flying economy, but I was going to get into the lounge. I was like, yeah, this is this could be really good. I mean, to be honest, there's not in in Italy. There's a lot of loud Italians gesticulating yeah. and talking hands, so I don't think they would have noticed. I think we use the word passionate. They are definitely passionate. They yeah, passionate. yeah, and if it's not them, they'll be loud. Loud American businessmen just talking endlessly about deals on their phone. That is my biggest frustration. And now everyone seems to just think it's okay to be on their speakerphone when they don't need to be. (laughs) And it's always like, yeah, million dollars, million dollars, make it happen now. And I was like, none of these people are on the phone with anyone. At first I was like, I can't relate to you guys. But now that I think about it, it's always when traveling and it's always at the like gate. And there's always some business dude who thinks this is the most important deal point of all time. I always feel like grandstanding a bit, if I'm being honest. I feel like it's yeah. a little performative. Yes. Like they want everyone there to know that they are a wheeler and a dealer yeah. making major moves. I luckily with Dyson, I get to fly first class. And because my dad was a pilot, I'm the first one at the gate. I'm like first person there waiting to get on the plane. I just want to get on the plane. And every time I'm usually dressed like this and it's always that guy that comes up and tries to push by me. And he's like, "Uh, this is the first class line. I'm like, (laughs) and I just turn around. I look at him. I was like, yeah, I know. (laughs) Well, he just doesn't get how I could be in first class. But you can't have it all ways. No, you can't walk down the street and look like you're on your way to Guitar Center. True. And also (laughs) have people assume that you're in first class. You know, you got to pick your lane. You're in it. True. I actually, I go another way. I'm not offended. I'm delighted. 
Like I'm in the first class line and I get that same thing. Yeah. And then I think, that's right. You don't even know. And I know. And this is great. <laughs> and then, I actually bought my ticket and your business bought your ticket. Yeah. I get a, I go out the other way. I, it kind of um, inflates yeah. my ego that I look like a shithead there. I get it. But what I do like, and I feel like such an asshole for liking it, is when that guy's an asshole to me. And he's not in business class. He's just priority because he's flown so much. Oh, sure. But he's in, like, <laughs> the first line behind it. And I'm just like, <laughs> I just, like, look at him as he's walking past me. You should give a playful yeah, wave as wink. he goes by. Yeah. Or you should be the guy who goes up and draws the curtain for the to shut the poor people out <laughs> with a look of disdain on your face. He comes to use the bathroom, and Put I'm your, like, sorry, sir, not Put not an arm bathroom. out. Yeah, yeah clothesline him. Hey, can we go back to Pina Fiere or however you pronounce it? A pin in Farina. Pininfarina. Explain Pininfarina because I know they designed uh, uh, many of the Ferraris and then weirdly also the Cadillac Alante. Are they independent from Ferrari? How does that work? They are, yeah. So they're a, a old-fashioned coach building and design house back in the day. And yeah, Sergio Pininfarina just designed absolutely beautiful cars. Some of the gorgeous Ferraris from the 60s, 70s and before. And for a little while, it looked like Ferrari would effectively absorb Pininfarina, but they never did. Um, and now Ferrari have, have actually taken most of their designs in-house. So they don't work that much with Pininfarina. But Pininfarina do... A lot of special projects. So if you want one of those super duper one-off Ferraris or any sort of one-off car, then then Pin and Farina started doing that. Ferrari recognized it and then started their own department doing it. Um, but they do engineering, um, styling, all sorts of stuff. And they've got places in Turin, Miami. I think they've just opened a styling place in New York. They've got a couple of places in China. So they're like a one-stop shop uh, engineering styling house. The Venn diagram overlap of easy places to get cocaine seems obvious. Miami. Yes. <laughs> Well, come on. <laughs> I mean, it's been in Freeder. It's cool. But this, this wind tunnel was 50 years old. So it was like the first full-size wind tunnel, oh, I think, wow. in Italy, maybe in Europe. And it was super cool because it's obviously been upgraded over the years. But it's like a Cold War submarine or something. When you walk in the door, all these big heavy metal doors with huge bars to open them. It was just like super cool. Um, and they build a new electric supercar now it's it's pretty complicated it's not actually the same company but it's called automobili pininfarina with like 1900 horsepower uh electric thing so we had that but we also had which was really cool this was for a road and track feature coming up we had a lamborghini mura <gasps> in the pininfarina wind tunnel i just asked you the other day if that would make your top five list because it would for me and you said i've never driven one i can't put it there which was very ethical but i'm going on looks alone i can put it there it's beautiful. And the funny thing is it was designed by Batoni. So it's like um, almost like the one of the enemies of Pininfarina. So to get it in the Pininfarina wind tunnel was cool. But I think Lambo said there's, they don't think anyone has ever put a Mura in a wind tunnel, even Lamborghini back ah. in the day, obviously. So it was, and they famously, you know, people at the time who drove them said the front would start to take off at 150 mile an hour and all that stuff. So we put it in one wind tunnel to um, see what would happen. What happened? Did it lift? It did a backflip and land on its roof. <laughs> oh, my God. How exciting. No, really. <laughs> oh, my God. I believed you. I believe you. <laughs> I, don't, I got the results, but the great flaw in my plan was that I have no freaking clue what the results mean because they're all written in aerodynamics speak. So I am having the data interpreted as we speak, and I should get it in the next day or two. And it seems like they would want to strap it down like you would on a dyno in some capacity. Because what if they... they 
they got that wind tunnel up to 160 and then they just shot across the room and fucking, because those things are worth, they got to be a couple million dollars now, those mirrors? Yeah, I don't know if they're that much, but this one would have been, it was a SV, one of the last ones built, um, owned by Walter Wolf, who was one of the big Lambo investors back in the day. So it's like super cool history. Um, yeah, they strapped it down. We only ran the wind tunnel up to, I can't remember what it was, like 120 miles an hour or something. It goes up to 160 something, but it's just, it was a really cool thing to be in. But I was asking them about Formula One, models and stuff because most of the uh, the formula one cars can't go in a full-scale wind tunnel they're half scale i think by mm. um i think that's part of the rules probably to do with the cost cap but he was saying this guy that even the models that they put in the wind tunnel for f1 are at least a million dollars oh my god well i mean they'd have to yeah. be right because you're you're making an entirely new car just because it's to scale i'm sure yeah you scale down all the cad stuff but you're building the mold for the uh, for the monocoque and everything, it still has to be the same. Yeah, but they're just made of like, I don't know what they're made of, but not carbon fiber, they're I'm not? assuming. No, I don't, I don't I, well, maybe they are. But They'd have to um, be, right? Because you'd get body flex yeah. and stuff that would uh, affect the Yeah, arrow. you're probably right. Yeah, you're probably right. And then it's all the sensors. They have sensors all over them. And, you know, but they, yeah, they were saying it's amazing what they're doing in F1, obviously, because it always is. Well, people who didn't grow up in the auto industry in the way I did, you know, my mom worked at General Motors. I had a stepdad who was in the Corvette group. So I got to go to a lot of these different design studios. And um, have you ever seen the clay models of cars I, I i've gone down a rabbit hole of watching them being made yeah and it's one of i would love to be there yeah they carve it just like when you do pottery yeah. and you're you're trimming the lid you know or the uh the lip of your pot they're just going down and they're just forming it by scraping away the clay it's so cool as a kid i was like oh my god this is exactly what i want i want to build clay cars in my backyard it's the last thing you would have thought would be the way that they do it yeah yeah so cool um, but okay, and then you said Bertoni. So Bertoni also designed some Ferraris. They had that their own little car. Remember in the eighties, they did very few Ferraris. They did a car called a three hundred eight GT four, which was the um, Magnum PI car. No, that's a Pininfarina. That's the beautiful, um, very sensuous, curvy Pininfarina look. The Bertoni one was very squared off, um, and at the time, people there was a two plus two, and people sort of hated them. But actually, they look cooler and cooler. And now they're starting to become valuable. Uh, and they, they look actually pretty awesome. Different, very different to Pininfarina stuff. It's so weird how the mind, there's some weird hiccup in thinking where all these cars go through these phases where you're like, oh, those were putrid. It seems to be always mm -hmm. like two generations after the car. Like, you know, we're currently there with the 348 Ferrari where you're like, oh, I don't even think I'd want one if someone gave them to me. But I'm smart enough to know in about nine years, I'm going to be like, God, I really want a 348. And the, that happens with the Vets. It's happened to me with all the Ferraris. It's happened with the Lamborghinis. It's very weird, the cycle it goes through where, you know, two generations out from the new body, you hate it. And then four, you love it. Yeah, exactly. They they get old and then they somehow become timeless. It's weird, isn't it? It's it's they go through that stage. I'd say the Mura didn't go through that. It's just always been gorgeous. But the 308 had a good 20-year period where you're like, oh, who would want that? It's cheesy and it's Magnum PI's car. And now like I'd kill for a mint 308. Yeah, they're gorgeous. Well, the the Mura's got a cool story because like several people claim they designed it. Um, oh, really? Uh, and so it's still this story like Giugetto Giugiaro, who worked at Batoni at the time, who's a famous designer, designed so much stuff. He claims he did it. Gandini, Marcello da Gandini, another famous designer. Mussolini claimed he had done a draft. 
But I just love that. It's so gorgeous that designers around Italy are just sticking their hand in the air and saying they did it. <laughs> I really hope for the edit we have flashes of these cars come up because mm. I am currently lost. I'm sure some of you are, and I hope you get to enjoy watching some of these cars. That's... I kind of know some of them, but a lot of numbers. Yeah, you know Matt. I'm excited. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you would remember the 348 from the video game Outrun. I never played that. Oh, my god! I only just got into video games. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> just... And you don't even call them video games. You call them sim. But they're video games. Yeah. yeah. They, I just I just drove across the country in the last week in miles. So, yeah, we're good. You've passed uh, you've passed Alonzo for more miles raced. Last two weeks, I've done 3,000 miles. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. You've raced from L.A. to New York. But that's not even in the Formula One game. That's just because with the Gran Turismo game. So it's been a lot in the uh, Porsche GT3. And a lot of it's been Nuremberg. Oh, you have? You're learning the ring. I can't just believe that you raced around it and you drove around it. Like, it's the craziest, just grimy, yeah, nasty track. And you don't know what's about to happen next. If you've driven in the twisty country roads of northern Canada, that is the track. You're yeah. just on a, like, you're on a public street. But not on who a knows race what's car. Next. It's like... You're going I, through it so fast. Yeah, I think I just sent yeah, I sent you a video, didn't I, Jethro, of a guy in a in a 911, maybe? Is that what he was saying? Yeah, in the old roof yellow bird. Yes, and he Stefan Stefan oh. Rosa. That was do you know what? That was one of the first viral internet videos for car guys, but it was pre-internet. So people would give you like a VHS tape uh -huh. half worn out of this. Is that guy even alive? Did he make it the way I met him? <laughs> oh, you I did? met him. I drove in that car with him. No! Yeah, that exact car. So um, his name is Stefan Rosa. And I just so people will be interested in this, if I can give an analogy, if you can imagine someone on a 10-speed road bike going downhill on the side of a ski hill, how out of control that would look, that's about the vibe of this video. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a video of a car called a Roof Yellow Bird um, on the Nurburgring, which is an old uh, 911 turbo-based car, but Roof do huge amounts of work. So massively powerful, 530 horsepower, really light, six-speed box, all this stuff that Porsche didn't have at the time. And he drives it not for lap time, just for spect spectacle, basically. So there's smoke and angle, and he looks like he's wrestling the car. It's like... Uh, it's sideways in the middle of the straight. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it looks like the guy just got divorced. I mean, it's... <laughs> It looks like a death wish run. <laughs> and it's called Fascination. Like I said, it was this really, um, it's a cult video. Ah. And I went, to, I went to Roof to drive that car. Um, and I was like, is Stefan still around? Like, can he come over? And now Roof really celebrates its history. Old Porsches are so expensive. The car's been restored. It's perfect. When I got there, it was parked in the back in a car park. No one had driven it forever. They had to like find the keys for it. It was dirty inside jump start it yeah they gave it a little clean put some fuel in it and i'm like yeah fine and stefan's gonna be here in a bit and so i went out with stefan rosa in that car he drove like an absolute lunatic from the very first moment um <laughs> and then i drove it too and it was it was awesome it was really awesome i wonder if he's the guy I remember back in junior high i had saved money and i had a subscription to automobile magazine which was like our best magazine in the u.s and i remember reading an article i think was in there and it was about the guy at the roof you say roof i said rough as a kid the rough factory whose job it was to speed certify top speed certify them after they were built and he would get on this stretch of the autobahn and he would just go as fast as the car would go and these cars went like 212 and stuff in the in the 90s yeah. right they, they didn't have the any of the other uh, safety equipment you'd want at 212 
Yeah, they do it out on the autobahn and they used to do it not by the speedo because they're not that accurate. So they would use either kilometer marker boards or they would measure the distance between um, lampposts and then measure between the lights and get the speed. (laughs) But yeah, they would do... The Yellowbird was named Yellowbird at a road and track event. They were doing a top speed event. Yeah, it was named at this top speed event at VW's test track called Aero Lessine in Germany. Um, and all the supercar manufacturers turned up and Roof turned up with the Yellowbird and it beat them all. I think it did either 212 or 217. I think it might be 212. And that's when it was christened the Yellowbird. So, uh, yeah, it's just a super cool thing. They're worth a fortune now. Yeah, what do you think that car is worth? That original one, if it ever came up, because that is the car that did all the testing... It's got to be a couple of million bucks. Got to yeah. be. That's so wild. Wow. It's so wild, those Porsches. Also, talking about driving, we haven't been able to talk about you and that Travis Pastrana video doing those. I can't even call it a donut. Like a Hold on. Jethro was in a Travis Pastrana video? Yeah, it's my new bro. No, we, <laughs> <laughs> I did a series for Top Gear's YouTube channel, and we went and drove the Subaru Huckster. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a state Subaru that they built with 830 horsepower and sequential box. And yeah, so I got to spend a day with him ripping around this test track doing donuts and reverse entries yeah. and like everything. It was so This much. was we Jethro's had- face. As a passenger? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, do that it it was just spinning on a dime. Like if there was a pipe in the middle of it, it yeah. was just spinning. Around. I've never seen an, a car do that. Most of it was fun. Like him driving or me driving was great. It was awesome fun. But he said, we're going to do the four-wheel drive donut where it just sits and spins in its own length effectively. And and he was like, do you want to get out? Because it's horrible. And I was like, no, I'll be fine. <laughs> I, it's horrible. I, should, I should probably stay. And so he was like, okay, but he said, I feel sick. So you're going to really feel it. Oh. And he started and he's ripping through the gear. So I think we end up in fourth gear doing, <laughs> and you are just sat still. And it's like being some sort of astronaut tester plus having acrid rubber smoke. Oh. Yeah, it's got to go through a set of tires in fourth gear in like six minutes or less. Oh, no. We um, we had 36 sets of tires for the day and we could, uh, if we did like a massive continuous donut, we could do a set in about 35 seconds. Oh, yeah. my God. 35 it was insane. Seconds. Oh, 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 my God. Both, both of you guys. It reminds me of the scene. <laughs> <laughs> it is this scene. You guys might be too young to have seen Spies Like Us with oh Chevy Chase and, and Dan Aykroyd. But they go in that G-Force thing that whips you around. The, the, yeah, that's what it's like. And then they get out and they're walking down the hallway and he goes, you want a cup of coffee? He goes, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> it was so unpleasant. And after like so two unpleasant. seconds, I remember him having said, I can get up to like fifth gear. And so after like two or three seconds of him doing it, I was like, I'm in for a fucking ride here. This could take <laughs> minutes. And so I was like, what do I do? And I was like, I'm just going to shut my eyes and pray to God that the tires pop in like 20 seconds. Yeah. You know, this might surprise you, but I have been offered a couple times to go for a ride with the Blue Angels or another yeah. group like that. And um, the folks that have offered are, are so shocked I don't want to go. But I'm like, I know exactly how this works. They take you up there and they make you puke in your oxygen mass. Like, that does not appeal to me in any way yeah. whatsoever. You know, my dad was the Canadian version of those. Oh, he was? Yeah. The Snowbirds. The Snowbird. Yeah. He trained a lot of the Snowbirds on it when he was in the Air Force. And he was like, when he was growing up, his 
boss, I guess, or a sergeant in the military would hate him. He did this move where he like went <laughs> vertical in a helicopter, which uh -huh. he shouldn't have done. He almost got in a fight with his sergeant. It's like <laughs> crazy. He had seen Top Gun and he was mavericking yeah. everything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Why did he take that up? Was it just to be closer to God? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, yeah. God has got to yeah. explain the blue. What was it? The I think it was after. Angels? I think it was. I think it was after he, you know, found the Lord for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, that's a good co-pilot to have. Yeah, yeah. When you're pulling that kind of shit. Oh yeah. Um, okay, so we have all started, and or some of us may have finished this mm -hmm. new docu series, Braun. I don't know. Braun GP. Maybe is that what it's called? The B R A W N. Because we all had a hard time finding it. Because Jethro's in England. And he's watching it on Disney Plus, and I spent, you can't imagine how long I was on Disney Plus, Lincoln and I. And she's not, you know, she's 10, so she's starting to surpass me technologically speaking, which is insane. I mean, that's how I was with my grandparents at 10, but I didn't think it happened to me. But anyway, she's like, I bet you have a wrong, um, you know, parental setting, and it's probably like R-rated, and it's set. So we're, she's in all these menus editing my profile, and we're putting it on, you know, R-rated, I'm allowed to watch that content, reload everything, still not there, restart the whole, you know, Apple TV, finally text you guys like, how are you watching this? It was on Hulu. Yeah. I thought it was globally on Disney Plus. I thought that was the thing. So, so well, did I for about it's 40 Disney minutes. Plus, but if you have a certain Hulu package, it's through that. It is not on Disney Plus. Really? It is only on Hulu. Yeah. Because we shut off our Disney Plus because we have Disney through Hulu. So I just guess assumed it was just on Hulu. Right. It's actually, through for whatever reason, on Hulu here. It, is, it doesn't Disney. exist on the Disney Plus app. You can, I've searched it every conceivable <laughs> way. Anywho, I would have been further through it before today had I been able to find it. It'd be a whole episode further on. But we did find, how, how deep are you guys? I went yeah, hard. you're good like that. Yeah. yeah. For There's, four hours. I thought it was a movie. Yeah. I thought I was in for like an hour and a half, two hours. And then I turned on, I was like, no, this is a four-part full hour episodes. I was like, I'm in it. Which normally is delightful. That's what you want. Yes. Like, I'm mad that the Senna movie is a movie and yeah. not eight episodes because I want way more of that. It changes. The Ex exactly. I had the same feeling. Have you seen the whole thing, Jethro? I'm in the final episode just at the point where the Brazilian Grand Prix is about to start. So I'm not <sighs> quite there yet. So, um, but do you want, shall I give background to what it actually entails, yeah, this sure. documentary? Yeah, and I would just say as a precursor, I, I am curious your enjoyment watching it versus Matt and I's, because I don't know any of that. In fact, what I was delighted by, just to remind folks, you and I raced Jensen Button, which is in, kind of inconceivable. You beat his sorry ass. <laughs> I almost lapped him. I was just on him at the finish line. But um, so fun to have done that. I mean, so just so lucky in like what what a, what a life we have that this the the topic of this documentary we have been in a minivan race with on an oval track. It seems impossible. <laughs> yeah, he's a legend. Yeah. So the story is effectively. Um, revolves around 2008-2009. So Honda was a manufacturer within F1. They were uh, doing engine and chassis, so like Ferrari or Mercedes, a full manufacturer. Credit crunch bit, um, world goes into recession, Honda decide to pull out. Ross Braun, um, who is the boss man, and Nick Fry at Honda at the time don't want to accept that, and they try and keep the dream alive. They do that with a deal that effectively still costs Honda money, but it costs them less than shutting the operation. And they rebrand it as Braun GP. Braun had had huge success with Ferrari, uh, managing the team when Schumacher was champion all those years in a row, and before that, Benetton, and before that, Le Mans. So he had a great history, hugely respected guy. And for one year only, they created a team called Braun GP, which he bought for one pound, a singular, singular pound. And they went on to 
win the Drivers' World Championship and Constructors, I guess. And the particulars of how they got the team are so interesting. And of course, they make sense in some way, but at the same time, it's preposterous. So basically, because of the 08 recession, Honda's not selling any cars. They're like, we've got to slash our overall budget. We've got to get rid of this team. They think they're just going to close the door, lock it, and wave goodbye to everybody. Mm -hmm. But I, I imagine it's a British law. They're required to carry the salaries of everybody. So what, what it what it turns out is that even for them to kill the team entirely, it's going to cost them $100 million. So they basically go to Honda and say, how about this? We'll take over the team. You only have to pay $90 million <laughs> to give know, us the amazing. team. That was yeah. my favorite part of the story. You have to imagine the board meeting at Honda where at some point they're like, geez, they've got us over a barrel. <laughs> and a, but I guess we do have to save the $10 million if that's an option. But crazy that you'd be willing to spend $90 million and not $10 more million just to continue on with the team. And the great thing was they almost do that as a throwaway line they don't dwell on it mm -hmm. at all no They're just like oh i i did give them a pound for a team and then it turns out yeah you gave them a pound and they gave you 19 billion <laughs> yes yes he traded it was 90 million to one odds on that <laughs> and the old ceo of honda still has the pound in his pocket yes he's weirdly it proud like, of it yeah yeah and he was like you know we're gonna get into some stuff at the end too but like he's asked about it at the very end of this all, and he's like, how do you feel about this? And he's like, obviously sad that we had to go out, but this is just so many factors had to happen in the world and life. Like, this could never happen. And because this happened, it worked. Like, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, and the sweetest thing is that CEO, um, he started the meeting announcing that they're shutting the team down. They got to the meeting, and he was just openly crying. I love him. I know. He's such a sweet oh. man. But then this peculiar situation arose from the deal that was struck, which was basically they were going to run out of money in three months, and they have to pretty much ask everyone to just commit, knowing that they're going to have to potentially work for free in hopes of being good enough to bring on some sponsors. It's, it's, it's a wonderfully dramatic setup to start. I mean, they're out of money on the first tests, or rather the first qualifying, basically. Yeah, they can't even paint the cars, mostly. Stay tuned for more F1 with DRS. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. 
the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. But I want to put into context how bad Honda had been. So the turnaround in this story from 2008 to 2009 when they won under the name Braun GP with a different engine. So in 2008, they were ninth in the championship had endless problems, retirements. Jensen finished 18th in the Drivers' Championship and Rubens finished 14th. So they were rescuing a company that effectively looked terrible. And this was pre-budget cap. So at the time, the likes of Toyota, Ferrari were spending upwards of $500 million per season, like perhaps more. Toyota were just throwing the kitchen sink at trying to win and failing miserably, by the way. And Honda had spent a fortune too, right? They had been the most funded team in 08 or 07. Yeah, so they were spending hundreds of millions to lose. Um, but the idea that this team pre-budget um, cap could could continue with no money effectively 90 million they said their development budget was in the hundreds of thousands for the for the entire season and you can oh imagine Toyota's oh. might have been 150 million so that's the scale of what yeah. was ahead of them. um so to take that pun i think is amazing and ross broad is like so cool isn't he just like yeah. so da- never a wasted <laughs> never. word no Never emotion, just a smile of like, yeah, we we did it. We know what we did. Cartwright, never above 60 beats no. a minute. And at the end, like at the very end, they're, they're all like, and he finally got emotional. Well, His emotional is like my cool and chill. There was a weird flashback to George Russell who thought it was raining, but it was a sweat on his oh, visor. Yeah. So they did. <laughs> they claimed that uh, Braun was crying after the first win of the first race. Yeah. And they show his glasses, which, by the way, are inordinately thick. Lincoln yeah. was upset. She needed a lot of explanation on how someone's glasses could be that thick. I don't know if anyone yeah. knows the profile shots. Mine but are definitely that thick. I, I don't know. I've spotted yours quite a bit. I am paying probably $500 per pair of glasses to get them thin-ish. A Swiss lens maker oh, has they to are grind them. Enormous. <laughs> out of, cri- out oh, of yeah. crystal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at any rate, his glasses were... Covered yeah. in in moisture. Oh yeah. So I don't know if he was crying that profusely or what. Yeah. But it was also like when we talk about like the beginning, like Jethro explained this. Like I think it was a Honda engineer that figured out it was a rule change. A rule going change, into 09. kind of like Adrian Newey has now done with the the RB19 since last year. Yeah. Effectively, there was a big rule change as well, which is what 
gave the team confidence to try and carry on. So the engines had already gone down from V10s to V8s a few years before. Um, but slick tires were coming back. They'd run groove tires, which suck uh, since 1999, but slick tires were coming back. But more importantly, they were trying to slow the cars down again. So lower rev limit for the engine down to 18,000 RPM. What did you say? Down to 18,000? Uh, yeah. That's yeah. like 5,000 more than a GSXR motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and way more than they currently run because um, they were running 20-odd thousand. Then they got it reduced to 19 and then it came down to 18. Yeah. I'm so shocked those motors grenaded often. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? Um, but then they also changed the regs uh, for the aero. They wanted to reduce the aero again. So it was a big front wing. They wanted the front wing to do more. The cars look weird, actually. Really narrow yeah. rear wing that's higher. And the diffuser had to be higher up and further back so it would be less effective. So these cars weren't pure ground effect like the new cars, but they, that was still producing 40 or 50% of the downforce. So they were trying to take away as much of that as possible. They were talking about slowing the cars by two seconds a lap, maybe three seconds mm-hmm. a lap, because they felt the corner speeds were getting out of hand. So that was the deal. But yeah, a Japanese young, fairly junior aerodynamicist came up with the idea of creating a double diffuser, which is very complex, but effectively, instead of just using the underside, they could put a hole um, in the vertical plane because you couldn't see that from underneath the car. So it's therefore not a hole by on the, the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. And and then you could use another diffuser on the, on the top there. So it gave them a massive downforce advantage. And it seems like they had a tunnel running through the car yeah. that was where the pressure was existing. Yeah. 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 So, so they spotted something. I mean, it's really cool when they talk about the court case where they're arguing, is a hole a hole? Effectively, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. what they're talking about. Yeah, Christian Horner is so furious <laughs> to this day, you know, 15 Which years Which is exactly later. what they're doing with the rule changes. I, it's so fun to look back at this sport, you know, 15 years ago and go, oh, my God, it's identical. I like My, my, my like, big uh, overarching takeaway was, it's such a funny sport because it's a bunch of highly successful, very rich human beings that always get their way everywhere they go and they have to come together and not get their way. And the the level of indignation they experience when it's not going their way is really record setting. <laughs> it's so comical. You say that and you're absolutely right. But what I also love about it, it's not that long ago, but it looks like a period drama. I, I wanted to say the same thing. I'm like, I don't. I was alive then, and I, I was literally doing the math in my head. I'm like, when did I get an HD TV? Well, I got an HD TV in 2004. Yeah, this is 2009. Why on earth does this look like it was shot on eight millimeter? And also, like, <laughs> what they're like the baggy race suits. Oh, I know. Yeah, they like even stuff like uh, Vettel is still pretty new. So they're trying to figure out how to say his name. So sometimes he's Vettel, sometimes he's yes, Vettel. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's so different to now in some ways. Lewis looks about eight years old, which oh, is awesome. Wow. Wow. What a transformation he has undergone. He, 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 he's, I guess many of these drivers have. Well, certainly Alonzo's like 10x as good looking as he was as, yeah. a, as a rookie. But also Lewis. Got Lewis way looks like, cooler. Lewis looks like he's like a freak they pulled out of a closet that they knew was a savant racer yeah. and said, go get him, you little freak. And now he's like a gorgeous supermodel with great style. But back then it was, he just looked like a, a, an abstraction that was built to drive a race car. And even Horner the same. Horner is yes. oh, yeah. 
so much better, has he? He looks, he just does not, it's not a good look on him. But it did put it in perspective. I like, I had to replay the interview I had done with him in my mind, now having a visual of him in that era. Cause he really, like I knew num numerically he was quite young, but you got to see it. Like he was a baby out there fighting with all these, you know, very senior, very seasoned competitors yeah it made me reevaluate just how impressive horner is yeah because like the other the braun he wanted to be a principal so like he left ferrari but telling the boss of ferrari no i'm not going to another team i'm going to go fishing for the year yeah so he went fishing for the year and then when he came back he only came back because he got to be the boss of a team but like he was much older than horner is and like yeah. for him to have had that record and Horner was just there. Like, yeah. Horner was young and, like, proved himself so young and early. It was crazy. I think the great thing about the whole doc is who they speak to, though. They get everyone, don't they? Like, uh, Luca de Montezemolo, who was, like, the boss man at Ferrari forever, um, who's still raging. Oh, that they <laughs> still, 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 <laughs> still back to that passion we spoke of earlier <laughs> with the Italians. The most Italian way as well, isn't it? It's, it's so... <laughs> It's so felt within him. It's like it's just bursting out of his chest, the pain all these years later. Yeah, the, the wound has not even begun to heal. It's very exposed no. and raw. If anything, it's grown bigger and bigger. Well, he I think also... it's gone downhill from then. It's never really come yeah. back for them. Yeah, he's upset. The backdrop of the politics going on between <sighs> the teams and the owner and Formula One management and the FIA. So there's there's tons of drama going on. I have to say it was... I really enjoyed it yeah. more than I thought I would. The, particularly the first couple of episodes when all the politics and business stuff was happening. Mm. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and then um, we got to see, and I do believe it because I'm so new to this whole sport. This is the first time I've seen Bernie Ecclestone, Steen, yeah. whatever his name is, chatting. Mm -hmm. And I was like, he looks like a villain in something. Oh, like yeah. he is, he does not exude a warm. <laughs> He's the ultimate villain. Yeah, he is not. He doesn't exude any warmth. They must have shot that what last year, and he's ninety three now. So he's probably ninety two when yeah. they filmed. So he's pretty sharp. Well, this segues beautifully into um, this is kind of an addendum to Zaddy's. It's in the same world, but. Um, Jethro has done yeah. some research to help us understand who Bernie is because he's, I guess, the most pivotal person mm -hmm. in Formula One history. He's he the, is. I have, I have dubbed him the father of modern Formula One. So yeah. you might say he is the zaddy of Formula One, all five foot three of him. The all, is he? No. Yeah. No. He's five foot three, yeah. No, he's yeah. not. Yeah, his, his oh. second wife was one foot taller than him. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. This is the same height gap between Kristen and I. Wow. <laughs> I hope he had lifts and stuff. <laughs> there are so many good little stats, though, like about his height. The fact that when his um, last kid was born, I think in 2020 or 2021, so he was like 89 or something. Oh, first ever insemination by dust. He had <laughs> a newborn dust. baby and a 67-year-old daughter. Well, no, 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 no. Say that again. Say that again. <laughs> He had a newborn baby and a 67-year-old daughter. A 67-year-old daughter? His, her sister, the baby's sister, was on Social Security oh <laughs> and a double ARP member. How cool is that? Uh, oh, that cracked me up when I read that. Oh, oh my Lord. <laughs> okay, so let me start with who Bernie was. This yeah. could go on, so I might have to skip bits. Um, oh, I want to learn all. Yeah, yeah. Spare us no so, detail. 
So the overall, the overarching story is that he was effectively a team owner turned commercial rights holder for F1. And when he took over the sport, it was effectively, or came into the sport, it was basically a bunch of guys who ran very similar Formula One cars. It was a much more amateur operation. There was no real money in it uh, and people were dying all the time. What year was this? He came in really early. He became the manager of an F1 driver in 1957. Oh, wow. And he became a team owner in 71. So that was when he really came in properly. And what was his team? Brabham. He bought Team Brabham off Jack Brabham. Not the Muppets? (laughs) Not Team Muppet? (laughs) But he ruled... He basically ruled the sport as a dictator for like 50 years. Uh, and he made the teams incredibly rich, which is why he could get away with all the stuff that he did. Which he said in the documentary, he likes dictators. He really likes dictators. Oh, he said that? Yeah. Oh, I guess I got He's like, everything that, should be a dictatorship. Oh, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he, as recent, a few years ago, he said he would take a bullet for Vladimir Putin because he, he was a great guy. And he also said that Hitler was a man who could get things done. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, this wow. is this is the man. <laughs> so this is a this is a team owner, Eddie Jordan. This is a quote about him which gives you some impression of what he was all about. So Eddie Jordan owned his own F1 team and was famous wheeler dealer, Irish guy, great businessman, did some great deals, brought Schumacher into F1, etc. So he said, anyone who has had a business, sold it four times, has never bought it back, has never lost its control, and still owns it is pretty special. And do you know the most, <laughs> do you know the most important thing? He never fucking owned it in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that sort of sums up the bad. Sold it four times and never owned it. That's fantastic. I got to figure out how to do that yeah. with something like the NFL or something. He's something else. So he was born um, October 1930 in Suffolk in the UK, which is the east of England, to um, Sydney, who was a fisherman, and Bertha, his mum. And then in 1938, they moved to Bexley Heath in southeast London. So you have to think this is like... War, you know, yeah. pre-World War II, basically. Yeah. He didn't move out to the country, he stayed in London during uh, the bombing. He basically loved motorbikes, racing, and making money. And by 51, 1951, um, he bought a 500cc Cooper F3 car and was regularly racing at Brands Hatch. After one bad crash where he was, this is a great story, he was thrown out of the car and landed in a public car park. (laughs) He decided to stop racing, which would make some sense. Um, So after he left, continued to pursue um, car businesses, property businesses, started to make a lot of money. So he was now had a tailor on Savile Row. Uh, He took his wife at the time to Park Lane Hotel for supper. And then at Crockford's, he was playing, uh, he was gambling against the likes of Lord Beaverbrook. And he became famous for his fearless gambling. These are so British, these references. Oh, like, yeah. I feel like I'm watching 007. Lord, Lord this, yeah. so-and-so. <laughs> yeah, this is why I've said it. So <laughs> he returned to racing in 1957. He became a manager of a British F1 driver called Stuart Lewis Evans. And he bought two chassis from a bankrupt F1 team called Connor. He even tried to race himself. He, he tried to qualify for the 1958 Monaco Grand Prix, but failed in one of those cars he bought. But he was a driver back in the day so he had that again it's hard to admit he's likely a much better driver than i am which is just so hard to swallow 
<laughs> well, I guess everyone drove like I did back in the day. <laughs> no, yeah. I think it would have been fine. Um, so that was his first job. Then Lewis Evans died, uh, like many drivers of the time, uh, in the in Morocco in the last race of the 1958 season. Car burst in flames. Bernie quit the sport again. But then he was back managing Austrian driver Jochen Rint in the 70s. So he was a mega driver. In 1970, he was driving for Lotus F1 team. Uh, he was killed during practice at the Italian Grand Prix at Monza. He was leading the F1 championship at the time, and he later became the only F1 world champion awarded posthumously. So he died, but oh. still won the title. Oh, wow. Um, that makes for a somber celebration. Yeah, not yeah. great. Not great times. But, you know, back in the day, they were dying all over the place. Yeah. That's what's wild. Yeah, when you hear about these people, it had to be like a 10% likelihood of death in the sport. Several deaths a year, basically. It wasn't like it was that rare an occurrence. You might have two go in a weekend, you know. It was like wingsuiting. Yeah, it was incredibly dangerous. That'd be really weird to do a podcast on the sport back then when like almost <laughs> every, every other race episode, someone's dead yeah. and you're like, oh, I guess. Taking three okay. minutes, yeah. <laughs> three minutes of Instead silence. of P10, we'd be doing <laughs> the <laughs> going to die. Death oh, like, no. Death pool. <laughs> 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 Just gambling like Bernie. <laughs> bet, placing bets on who's going to die. One guy's oh, very excited. The other three are mourning. <laughs> so in 71, he bought Brabham. So he became a team owner, basically. But this is when he started to get involved in the politics. So he, he set up... A along with Williams and Colin Chapman at Lotus and a couple of others, the Formula One Constructors Association. And most of that really was to get money for the teams, for the races. But he started to realise that the TV rights were where it's at. So it wasn't really prize money, et cetera. It was mm. the TV rights. Uh -huh. um, there's all sorts of cool stuff in his story. In uh, Like Brabham, you could start to see how much he was thinking about the sport rather than just himself. They brought out a car called the BT46B, which was a fan car. I don't know if you ever saw it. So it was a Formula One car with a big fan oh. on the back. and It just sucked air out. Yeah. And it only raced once and it absolutely decimated everyone and clearly would have gone on to dominate. And it was not outlawed, but the other teams were so outraged that Bernie, who owned the team, actually withdrew the car voluntarily because he was so into the politics now of F1. And he wanted the teams to stick together because he could see the bigger prize, which was just over the horizon. It would have been penny wise and pound foolish to use another yeah. British reference. They always yeah. said that Bernie saw the vision but had no idea how to get there. That's what mm. Martin Brundle kept saying in all of his interviews in the movie, mm. which is fascinating. By the way, Brundle looks the exact same age. I mean, he just, I was expecting to see like youthful Brundle. I'm like, no, no, he's still mature. Yeah. He's still a cool guy, isn't he? He's the yeah. greatest. He sold Brabham for $5 million in 1988, but which by which time he was basically taking over F1 behind the scenes. So once he'd started the um, manufacturers all pulling together, they started to demand appearance money, um, and then there started this FOCA and then FISA, the Federation International de Sport Automobile War. So basically it was a bit like what happened later on in the documentary, uh, but the other, he started to rail against the FIA because he thought they were trying to hold them back, they were taking too much money, etc. So a war ensued where Bernie tried to wrest control of the sports and the commercial rights, and he used... Guerrilla tactics like boycotting events, stalking officials, and he once had. <laughs> so the president of the of FISA at the time was a man called Jean-Marie Balestri, okay, who he hated with a passion. And at one point during this uh, grappling match over the rights, he had the Spanish 
please march Balestri out of a race at gunpoint. <laughs> <laughs> Literally at gunpoint. So he won the war basically over a long protracted period. And in 1987, started a new company which would become FOM, Formula One Manufacturers, to manage F1's commercial rights. It was the first Concord Agreement that got signed, and under its terms, basically 40% of money went to the teams, 30% to the FIA, and 23% to FOM, which was basically Bernie. Oh, wow. So the teams were very happy that he'd wrested all this money for him, but they had yeah. noticed that he seemed to get an awful lot more than anyone else individually. This is reminiscent of this discovery deal. Or the guy who bought Warner Brothers and combined all this uh, HBO and Disney. He somehow had a payout of like $150 million. You know, nothing's made any money yet. Oh, my But God. he somehow, yeah. It's a crazy how it goes. And then, as you saw, Max Mosley became like his right-hand man in the FIA. So Bernie and Max had worked together in the past, and he managed to get Max Mosley in as FIA president. And several of his ex-Brabham staff moved into lead roles in the FIA. So so now they had the FIA and Formula One management basically Think under the control wow. of, of Bernie. In 1996, he transfers the ownership of his Formula One businesses to his wife Slavica for tax reasons. Um, and then it, he's intending to float the company as well. In 99, he sells 12.5% of the company to Morgan Grenfell Private Equity for $325 million. Then he manages to get the FIA to agree to a 100-year commercial rights deal for the oh. F1 championship. A so he hundred years. For 100 years for $360 million. Part oh of it God. was he paid... The FIA got new offices worth £60 million in Paris, so that was part of the sweetener for the deal. He then sold a further 37.5% for $725.5 million. Mm. Um, and then in 2001, he sold another 25% for $987.5 million. Oh whilst remaining completely in control of these companies he was always part of the deal and always um part of this so he's just i mean he's a crazy dude there needs to be a, a movie of his life I made so. for sure yeah. i mean i don't know who we get to play him maybe seth green and prosthetics or something but yeah. i need to see every iteration of this and how he's just inventing money around every corner i think you should get on the story asap i mean and through this time he's been investigated for tax fraud <laughs> well then he just you you reported a few episodes ago he had just paid almost a billion dollars in back tax he did he did, but he's he's just done everything. He was arrested uh, in 2022 for carrying a firearm while boarding a private plane to Switzerland. <laughs> to Switzerland. At, at 92. <laughs> Nothing makes yeah. me feel safer than uh, a 92-year-old with a sidearm. It's insane. He's just, he is, I mean, he's obviously got some terrible views, but he's a fascinating dude. And the way he managed to set all the teams against each other so he would always be the guy who ultimately had the power was incredibly mm. clever and in that period what you don't see is like he really controlled where drivers went etc as well so for example lewis's deal to mercedes it was bernie who said to lewis you should go to mercedes that lewis wanted to get out of mclaren he was desperate to do so but he didn't want to go to mercedes but but it was bernie who was like you should go there's stuff happening there it's going to be good he was really good friends with vettel used to play poker with him and stuff he just managed to orchestrate this whole circus and it always worked that he ended up the winner at the end of it how many kids does he have i think he has five 
Okay. Yeah. His first family is almost entirely private, don't know much about them at, at all. Then his second wife, he had two kids with, and now he's had, yeah, so maybe it's just four. And he recently had the, the fourth one. And his current wife, how old is she? I think she was 46 at the time the baby was born. Yeah, he's only twice her age. That's yeah. not terrible. Half the age of his oldest daughter. That's not terrible at the turn of the century. Yeah. <laughs> and what I found the most crazy is at the end, I had no idea that AMG Mercedes that Lewis drives for was the Braun team. Because at the end, they go meet with Patronus. Then they brought Mercedes. Patronus wanted nothing to do with Braun. And then they made a deal. They said, well, what we'll give you is based on your end result. And then they won. And then they switched over and AMG attached themselves to Patronus, which was the Braun team. And then most of them are still there. I was um, not shocked, just interested to learn that Mercedes had been already making motors for 20 mm -hmm. years. I forget what they said, but I, I, I thought Mercedes' arrival in F1 was with the AMG team. I had no idea they had been a, a man, an uh, engine manufacturer yeah. for so long. Yeah, I know that they had with McLaren for, for a long time and pretty successfully as well. Um, and then Braun, and yeah, the Braun thing's amazing. He buys it for a pound, he gets 90 million from Honda to run it, and then he sells it, literally, he wins the world championships, and then sells it to AMG for a fortune as well. I mean, it, you couldn't, you literally couldn't make it up. It's insane. Yeah, and they had um, another wrinkle in all that is that they didn't have a motor and no motor manufacturer wanted to give them one. And it was a, it was Mercedes that ended up giving them, mm -hmm. right? So they, they created their own high price they had to pay yeah. in essence. And their whole team, all the other teams supported them. They were the ones that were like, we need them to stay in it. We need them to stay in it and like push for them to get an engine. And then next thing you know, they're destroying them. Yeah. And they're like, oh, shit. There yeah. was a moment that one of my favorite moments was just the difference in how different people see things. Because Jensen Button was karting with his father and he was like doing okay. No, you know, not. Not won his first race as a karting kid, and then maybe he was in the race against uh, Max's mom at some point. I think he also was in a race against Max. Yeah. Somehow. Well, what he ha happened was he was on the way home, and another story: he's in the back of a van leaving oh. a karting race. We know that happened with Max, but he's in the back, and his father and his stepmom were in the front, and they thought he was asleep because he was kind of asleep, but he was awake, and he heard his father say, "I just don't think he has what it takes to get there." Mm -hmm. And then they were interviewing Lewis's dad about it and asked him the question. They were like, so he said he overheard his father when he was sleeping. And Lewis's dad was like, his father knew he wasn't sleeping. His father did this on purpose to motivate him. And it was just, mm. I don't think just seeing Jensen's dad, I think he actually thought he was sleeping. But then it's funny seeing this into Lewis's dad where Lewis's dad was probably doing that to Lewis. He yeah. was like, oh, I don't think you're good enough at all. I just think you're really bad. And then just knew it would light a fire. Yeah, it goes him. back to this question. Like, can you get a Lewis or a world champion without being manipulative and coercive yeah. in all these ways? Yeah, you need to be. But Jensen was, I mean, in karting, he was a godlike figure yeah. for a while. He, he got to the point where, you know, Lewis Hamilton had posters of button on his wall mm -hmm. and stuff. Like he was that good. He was, he was considered like the best, but it's, What's also really great about the doc, and I think everyone should try and watch it, is watching Jensen unravel over mm. the course of the season. It is fascinating because he starts off, can't lose, and then it feels like he can't buy a result and his teammate starts to beat him and everything is unraveling and you just see this panic set in and it's it's fascinating because he's if you look at everything, everything looks good. Everything's going the right way. 
he has a couple of bad weekends and it switches on its head and then he's just in full panic mode. Brundle was saying something about that, how like in Formula One, there's two different attitudes. There's either your ego is getting destroyed because you're losing to your teammate or your ego is just absolutely inflated because you're beating your teammate and there's no middle ground. And yeah, you, you can't tie it, your teammate. His teammate was depressed at the beginning of the season, was like, I'm everything's against me. And yeah. then all of a sudden at the end, he's like, everything's for me. And yeah. Jensen was swapped. You're right. Like, the mentality is wild. But, but Barrichello, one thing I was going to say, like, the ego of Barrichello is also something that could be a case study because he's mm-hmm. been at Ferrari as Schumacher's teammate and he got drilled every weekend. He got he got beaten comprehensively. Even if the odd weekend he was ahead, he was asked to move over. Like, he should have had every piece of confidence knocked out of him. He goes to Braun and he's losing to Jensen Bunn. And it's like it's the biggest shock of his entire life that he's not winning. Well, it's so bizarre. Imagine the whole time at Ferrari, he's like, yes, I'm getting beaten, but I'm getting beaten by the best driver to ever do it. That's kind of uh, palatable. But then you you get on a team with a guy that's younger than you and has not established himself as that, and then it's uh, demoralizing. Yeah. But I will say one last thing about Jensen is that he is the anomaly in that he was goddamn gorgeous oh. then, and he's gorgeous now. I mean, he started and kid. finished gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, and his wife is beautiful. I follow him on Instagram. Yeah. The whole package and could see, be in a uh, an advertisement for like American uh, yeah. Eagle or something. And so nice, like he just all in all of his interviews, so kind and just so. I don't know. He's also a rascal because he did unplug one of the wires out of the distributor on my minivan, which prevented me from <laughs> going above three thousand RPM. So uh, he's also rascally, which I admire and respect. I love it. <laughs> Uh, well, Jethro, that was a master class yeah, on, on Bernie. Um, I, the the doc is great. This is um, basically a, an invitation and a, and a promotion for everyone to go check it out. Uh, <laughs> in these um, waning days where we have nothing to focus on because we have, what is it, 12 weeks, 14 weeks? Yeah, How many like, weeks? Yeah. Something terrible. Something horrible. Something unacceptable. Many, many. This is a nice filler. So yeah. I encourage people to check this out and maybe stagger it. Maybe mm-hmm. one a week. Maybe watch one episode every Sunday like it's a race. Mm-hmm. That, that'll buy us a month. I think when I was thinking about this too, because I think the, um, the they just announced a launch date for Drive to Survive. Oh, when is that? It's like February, maybe 23rd or something like that. So okay. it's a bit of time leading up into yeah. the race. Thank which, God Christmas will gobble up some time. Yeah. My pitch would almost be like, I think we should do a recap race of every episode and watch it slowly. Mm. We've never done that. We always binge it, but it would be interesting to kind of unpack each episode. I don't well, know. it comes out shockingly close to the start of the season, so right? Maybe like, like two episodes, yeah. and then we do we talk about it because I think there's gonna be I think this is gonna be a good drive to survive season. Yes, despite, despite what a runaway how, it was. Yeah, yeah, because the the the, the inter rivalry between constructors was quite heated below oh, yeah. Red Bull. Well, boys, I enjoyed this immensely. We will be back next Wednesday with more content to fill the void. Uh, and until then, I encourage everyone to push, 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 push. 